Pray me as we uh, just try to center ourselves. Take a moment of silence as we prepare to pray together. We praise you for your redeeming grace. That although we were hostile in mind, doing wicked deeds, enslaved to a heart in rebellion against you, although all those things were true, you have adopted us as your children. We rejoice and we are in awe that we can call the God of the universe Father. Our Lord Jesus, we praise you for your love that you would endure such hostility from sinners, even to lay down your own life. And you would do this so that we might be reconciled to the Father we once rebelled against, so that we would be made sons and daughters of the King. Holy Spirit of God, we praise you for your gracious ministry of encouragement and consolation. Spirit of God, please continue to fill us and cause us to cry out, Abba, Father. Please give us assurance that because of Jesus, we are in fact children of God, and there is nothing to fear. O triune God, with your heart of love, help us to trust your wise care for us. God, we confess that we quickly forget how you have proven your love for us over and over again. God, we confess that we are quick to blame you, quick to question you, and we are often slow to trust you. God, we confess that we are impatient when our circumstances are uncertain. We confess that we would even project our bad traits onto you as if you are just like us. But God, we thank you that you sanctify those you save we thank you that your grace does not end with clearing our guilt, that your grace continues and that you make us holy. God, we struggle with this because part of our hearts still likes our sin. We struggle with this because we forget your good character. So it's our prayer that as individuals and as a church, you would make us holy as you are holy. And God, even use our fellow brothers and sisters to do this. God, grow us in how we listen to each other. Grow us in how we share our joys and our struggles. Grow us in how we respond with the word and prayer when we're speaking to each other. God, please do this so that Jesus becomes more precious to each one of us. God, we are confident not only that you hear our prayers, we are confident even that you invite us to pray. That you, you invite us to make our requests known to you, to come to you in our time of need, to cast our care upon you. And God, we are confident in this, not because of anything about us, but because of our all-sufficient Savior, Lord Jesus. So on the basis of the access that Jesus has granted to us, God, please bless Carla Kong, Greg Landy, and Pete Patsy Leo. Bless them, Lord, with a deeper and sweeter walk with we thank you for each of these, Lord. God, we miss Carla dearly and ask that you would make a way for her to return among us. But Lord, please move upon her family to give her relief in caring for her mom. But also, God, show your good character through Carla as she cares for her mom. 
God, please give Greg wisdom as he navigates the tricky waters of semi-retirement. Help him to trust you and give him grace to persevere through health challenges. God, please help Greg love his wife as Christ loves the church. Lord, continue to make yourself known through Pete and Patsy uh, to their family, uh, through their faithful gospel witness. Lord, please give Pete and Patsy an insatiable hunger to know you, and would that result in a life that bears fruit of every good work? God, as a church, we have promised to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. And God, we confess that this is so not natural to us. We confess that we are so easily envious and critical and distant and cold. So God, please shine through this church by entwining us so deeply that we support each other and we even enjoy each other and that we are eager to help each other. Lord, we have a heart for the teenagers you've entrusted to our care. As they huddle together each week with Jared leading them, please give deep friendships. Please capture their hearts for you. Lord, please equip them to face the challenges of the world. And Lord, please even use them to bring uh, their friends to yourself. Father, we have tasted and seen that you are good. We desire others to know you and for those who know you to press on in the joy of their salvation. God, that's why we pray for other churches in our area. Please glorify your name through Parkside Westside Church in Lakewood. Please grant our brothers and sisters their unity in the gospel. Give them a heart for Christ. And Lord, we ask that through them you would display your great and good character. Please cause Pastor Matt at Parkside and the other elders to lead with humility and love, to guard the preciousness of the gospel, and to equip the saints for the work of ministry. God of all the earth, Please continue to work in and work through Mark and Parker Phillips, missionaries to Niger. Mark and Parker have a busy schedule during their short stay in the States. Please help them enjoy the time with family and with friends. But also, Lord, please protect them physically as they do much traveling. Please provide for them so that they may be able to go fully funded back to Niger. Please protect them spiritually that they would draw near to you each day in a meaningful way. And Lord, please prepare a harvest of those who have new life in Christ in Niger. Please use Mark and Parker's church in Niamey as a launching pad for gospel light in that region in Africa. Gracious God, as we come to you in your word, please remind us of what we are doing. We want to hear from you. These words that we will study are, are how you have revealed yourself. They are how you have reconciled us to yourself. They, they tell of that. They tell how we live a life pleasing to you. This word is from you. So would you give us ears to listen? Would you give us hearts to love you and hands and feet to do your will as you call us to? By your grace and for your glory, we pray. You tell me if you've heard these phrases before. You do you. Find your way. Follow your heart. My story, my truth. 
customer is always right. <laughs> I'm spiritual, but not religious. All of these phrases express that the highest level of authority is the self. You see, our culture has shrugged off transcendent meaning, meaning that it's, our culture has shrugged off meaning that comes from God. So now we have to find meaning in the imminent or in the earthly. So if we have to do that, then each individual must find his or her own individual meaning. And so what becomes is that our highest priority in life is expressing that individual meaning and letting no one else define it or change it. All of this is a fancy way to say that each one of us wants to be in charge of ourselves. We don't want to submit to an outside authority. And if you think about it, especially when you compare this with the Bible, this doesn't fit very well with Jesus' call to deny yourself and follow him. Yes, we say God has given each one of us uh, dignity, worth, and value because we are made in his image. But we also say that we have inherited hearts that are desperately wicked and deceived. And so we as Christians, and most of us in this room, we would acknowledge the truth of this and maybe give a hearty amen. But even as followers of Jesus, we can still elevate ourselves to be the ultimate authority. We can follow Jesus, but we can do so on our own terms. So what it functions as, we follow ourselves and not the Lord. So we say things like we have a personal relationship with Jesus. We say things like we have individual Christians move from church to church the moment that there is something that he or she doesn't like. We can approach church with just what I can get out of it, how it makes me feel, how it does good to me. We can approach even the Christian life very self-centeredly. So how do we make sure that we follow Jesus and not ourselves? Well, it's the church. That's how. Part of what Matthew 18 will show us is that the church is not just a club that we join. The church is actually an authority we submit to. Now, I know we might cringe when we hear that, but I want to show you the good plan of that as we go forward. Because when we follow Jesus among a church, we effectively say, I'm no longer an independent authority unto myself. I invite the church into my life. So, we're in the second installment of a three-week series on the church. We want to see what the church is from the book of Matthew. And last week, we looked at Matthew chapter 16. There we saw that Jesus builds his church with those who are recognized to believe in truth about him. Just like Jesus recognized Peter to do that. Jesus talks about the church again in Matthew chapter 18. He addresses how to confront sin in the church. But as we will see, those instructions in this chapter give further shape to what a church is. So if you haven't turned there yet, I invite you to turn with me to Matthew 18, verses 15 and 20. And if you're looking at the Red Bible, uh, in the seat in front of you, it looks like this. You will find it on page 823. All right. Matthew 18, 15, and 20. I bet you to really have this as each week. Have the Bible open, even if it's on your phone. I don't care. Um, 
but to have it to follow along and keep it open the entire time, it'll help you follow along. It's just for your interest. So Matthew 18, 15 to 20. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his faults between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let it be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on, it, on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am. This is the word of the Lord. You might summarize the main point of this passage like this to find on the back side of your bulletin. By deliberately and mercifully confronting sin, the church reflects Christ's character and acts in Christ's authority in order to guard the place where Christ is present. We'll have three sections for our time. First, we'll look at the instructions for confronting sin in the church. Second, we'll look at the basis of, of what gives us the right to confront sin in the church. And finally, we'll just answer some questions of what does this mean for us now as a church? So again, it's our prayer with this series and each week that as a result, uh, you will be able to define simply and clearly what a church is according to the Bible, something we might take for granted. But again, each week we're saying we just don't want it to be a head exercise. We want <coughs> to be able to define the church so that we are convinced the church is precious. The church is essential. It's my prayer also that we would be compelled with the church's mission, the church's saving. So first, let's notice instructions for confronting sin in the church. You might remember uh, something that Jesus said. Maybe people have quoted it to you before. He said, judge not, lest you be judged. Sound familiar? Jesus did actually say that. The same person who said that gives these instructions here in Matthew 18. Judge not, lest you be judged comes from Matthew chapter 7. It is among the verses most taken out of context in the Bible. This verse, uh, the verses immediately surrounding it, the content of the rest of the book of Matthew, and even the rest of the Bible, guides us for what Jesus means when he says, Judge not, lest you be judged. See, if we are to follow Jesus' instructions in Matthew 18, if we are to follow them faithfully, well, then we must make some kind of moral judgment. There is a wrong way to do that, but for us to never do that would not only be unloving, friends, it would also even be disobedient to the Lord. So Jesus gives instructions for confronting sin in the church. Those instructions span from verse 15 to verse 17. And in those instructions, we see the occasion, the purpose, and the outcome. So first, the occasion. You just see it in that first short phrase in verse 15. If a brother sins against you. Now, a little bit of homework on that. Some, there's some debate whether the words against you is part of the original manuscripts in Matthew. Um, it really doesn't affect the actual meaning of the passage. Even if the words against you aren't included, we would still have the instructions from Galatians 6, verse 1, which says, If anyone is caught in any transgression, 
you who are spiritual should restore him in the spirit of gentleness. So the occasion is if any, if your brother sins against you. Now we can just make a few observations from that occasion. If your brother sins against you, one observation is that the person being confronted, look at how they're labeled. Labeled as a brother. This is someone who professes to be a Christian. I'll argue later that this is someone who the church had even recognized and affirmed to be a Christian. But if you just skip ahead to verse 17 and look at the potential outcome that could happen for this person. The church could pronounce that this person lives like an unbeliever. This person has a persistent enough sin that calls into question the credibility of their claim to believe and follow Jesus. You start to wonder whether or not he is actually a Christian. Well, if that's the case, then just looking at the occasion of these instructions, we can make another observation. Now, this is going to be earth-shattering. Christians are still capable of sin. Christians are still capable of sin. Now, that might seem patently obvious to you, but I think Jesus might be more realistic about the church than we are. Now, don't hear me saying that we want to hunt for problems that aren't there, but we also don't want to be naive. We can't think that we are invincible against falling into temptation that seriously damages our walk with Christ. We can't think we're invincible against that. Christians are still capable of sin. Just looking at the occasion, if your brother sins against you, another observation. Even though Christians are still capable of sin, Jesus expects Christians to live differently than how we used to live. He expects us to live differently than how we used to live. Think about what's happening in verse 15. A Christian is bringing a fellow Christian's sin to their attention. That must mean something is off. That must mean that noticing and repenting from your own sin is part and parcel of what it means to live like a Christian. When we don't notice and repent of our own sin, Jesus says someone needs to confront us and bring it to our attention. So we say while Christians are still capable of sin, Christians now have a new stance against their sin. And when that stance isn't there, well, that's a problem. The occasion of these instructions, if your brother sins against you, what might not seem obvious is another observation we can make, is that we need help to fight against sin. Christians are capable of sin. Christians are expected to live differently, and we need help to fight against sin. So we, I think a lot of us often attempt to grow more like Christ. A lot of us often attempt to fight against temptation just as an individual. Just me and the Lord, and that's it. And we don't receive any help beyond that. It can even impact how we would read certain passages of Scripture. A famous fighting temptation passage is Ephesians 6 about the armor of God. If you're familiar with that one, we, at least for me, I think of that passage, it, it's just me. I'm a single warrior alone, and I have to put on all this armor and gear up for battle, and that's just it. But when you go back to Ephesians 6, actually, how the passage ends is Paul tells the Ephesians, you should pray for all the saints. That this battle is not done just as individuals. This battle is done together. Christians need help to fight against sin. Even look at the story that comes before 
in the story that comes after this section in Matthew 18. It's a story about seeking and saving those who are straying. It's a story about forgiving those who have sinned against us. We need help to fight against sin. So just this occasion, if a brother sins against you, we can make several observations about it. This is someone who professes to be a Christian. This is someone who is still capable of sin. This is someone who's expected to live differently, and this is someone who needs help to fight against sin. Jesus gives instructions for how to confront sin in this church. He starts with the occasion, but next he goes to the process. This is kind of the meat of verses 15 to 17. The process for confronting sin in the church. The process starts with one-to-one private confrontation. Go and tell your brother his fault between you and him alone. Friends, think about what Jesus doesn't say is the first step of this process. Think about what he doesn't say. Jesus doesn't say, if somebody sins against you, go and immediately tell other people about it. Because it's okay to vent a little. You've got to get this stuff off your chest. Because guess what? You've never liked this person anyway. It's time to bring other people in. Notice what Jesus does not say. Jesus does not say, if someone sins against you, store it away for later. At the opportune time, use it to attack that person. Now, First Peter says love covers a multitude of offenses. Sometimes we can just forgive without having to confront, but other times we should not let bitterness uh, well up within us. Notice what Jesus doesn't say. Jesus does not say, if somebody sins against you, go and tell them his fault between you and him alone so that you can score points and show that you are right. Jesus does not say any of these things. Jesus tells us that we should be honest with the person. But notice the goal of the private confrontation. The goal is for the other person's good. I wonder how much better off the church would be if she could do this well. If she could do this well, if if we could honestly and humbly have pretty frank and direct conversations. Instead of just talking about people, talking to people. And if we have the goal of the person's good, if we have the goal that the person would listen and be restored, friends, we're going to have that conversation in a gracious and humble way. And then we'll follow a verse like Ephesians 4, verse 29, which says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. I think this verse here about one-to-one private confrontation It should not only inform how we handle confronting someone in their sin, it should inform how we speak about other people in the church in general. Brother and sister, are you careful with your fellow Christian's reputation? How do you speak about other people when they're they're behind your back? So still, we see this first stage of the process. It's private. It's one-to-one. It's possible that the person who is confronted does not listen, even if, even for as humble and gracious as a confrontation might be, it's possible that the person just kind of doubles down. So the second stage in the process is to bring two or three witnesses along with the initial confronter. This principle comes from the Old Testament law. Outside witnesses lend credibility to charges. But notice here what the witnesses are witnessing. The person who initially confronted brings two or three with him for a second confrontation. So if the offending person still doesn't listen, well, now there are two or three more witnesses who saw it happen. So here again, 
we see how we reflect Christ's heart. Jesus' goal is not to embarrass the person in question. That's why the circle of people doesn't expand that much. The goal is a merciful one. It's to restore the person, to gain the person back. But again, the process might have to continue. It's possible that the person being confronted still doesn't listen. So the last stage of the process is to get the church involved. So verse 17, tell the church about the matters. The process has been slow to involve more people, but even as the circle of people gets bigger, the goal has not changed. The goal is not to embarrass, the goal is to restore. This stage of telling the church intends for the person who is being confronted to feel the weight of their sin. It tends for the person who's being confronted to feel the weight of God's mercy. I appreciate how one pastor describes it. He said, God loves us so much that if we are caught in stubborn sin, he will send an entire army of believers to us as a demonstration of his love and mercy. So at every stage of this process, whether private or two or three or to the whole church, we are meant to reflect Jesus's character. Remember that God calls us to be holy as he is holy, to be set apart from sin and devoted to him. So when we address the wrong and the sin that we do, we show our aim to reflect Christ's holy character. But we also have to reflect Jesus's character in how we confront sin. We show Jesus's heart of mercy and grace as we seek to reflect the one who himself sought and saved the lost. We reflect Jesus, the one who it was written of, when he was reviled, did not threaten. The one who died for his enemies, that they might be restored to God. So we've seen the occasion, we've seen the process, and, and last part of the instructions are the potential outcomes. There are really two potential outcomes that can result from this process. There is restoration, or there is excommunication. Restoration, or excommunication. The person in sin can listen to their brothers and sisters. They can get help to turn from his sin. He can display a desire to repent and he can even show progress in repentance. Or the person can double down, refuse to turn from their sin. And it's at this point that Jesus says in verse 17, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Notice that the person is no longer called brother. He is put outside the church because he is displaying a spiritual condition of those who are outside the church. Now what this means will get clearer as we head into the next section, but for what I want to focus on now is that for as hard as these instructions are, verses 15 to 17, for even as humbly and mercifully as we should carry out these instructions, friends, these instructions are not suggestions. These instructions are commands. They're commands from our Lord. We trust that our Savior's commands are good. Like we read from the book of Hebrews earlier, no discipline seems worth it in the moment. But in the long run, it is worth it. Even these instructions are worth it for the good of the person who is in sin. These instructions are worth it for the good of the health of the church. These instructions are worth it for the good of those who are outside the church. To look at Christians and to say, this is how Christians believe, they're not hypocrites. It's, these instructions are good for the reputation 
Christ's sake, for as hard as they are, they are good. But what gives us the rights to do this? What or who gives us the basis to confront sin in the church? This is section number two, the basis for confronting sin in the church. Here we look at verses 18 to 20. Jesus explains in these three verses uh, that the basis of his authority, of his support, and his presence. So verse 18, he talks about uh, he gives us authority to do this. So you look at verse 18, you just glance over it again. It should sound or look familiar. Because it is. It's the same thing that Jesus said to Peter just two chapters prior in Matthew 16. And you might remember the phrase, shall be bound, can more precisely be translated, shall have already been bound. So remember, this is authority to declare realities that already exist. This is not authority to create a reality. So so put it differently, this is not pronouncing the, the final judgment on a person's fate. That's a pronouncement that belongs to God alone. So the context of Matthew 16 and the context here in Matthew 18 shed light on what Jesus means by the keys of the kingdom and by binding and loosing. To exercise the keys, to bind and loose, means to do the same thing that Jesus did with Peter in Matthew 16. Jesus affirmed and recognized Peter as a believer in the truth about Jesus. We likened that authority to uh, the authority of an embassy. Remember that an embassy can't make citizens, but an embassy can recognize or affirm true citizens. So in Matthew 16, Jesus gives that embassy-like authority to Peter and the apostles. But here in Matthew 18, the you in verse 18 is plural. The you is plural. It's like Jesus is saying, truly I say to y'all. That would be the Texas version. But the you is plural. The group of people that he's addressing must be the group of people who are at the last stage of the process he just talked about. That is the church. Jesus gives the local church the authority to affirm that a person believes the truth about him. This helps us to know what Jesus is saying when he says, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. The sin of the professing believer has called into question whether or not He's legit as a Christian. He's persistent in sin so long you start to wonder his, his claim to follow Jesus. So when it gets to a point when a professing believer refuses to turn away from his or her sin, Jesus says that the church has authority to say, as best as we can tell, we can no longer affirm or recognize that you're a Christian. Will churches make mistakes using that authority? But any and every human authority makes mistakes. That doesn't give us permission to be careless, but neither does it remove the authority that Jesus gives the church. Now, just thinking about it a little bit more, if the church has the power to remove an affirmation that someone is, as best they can tell, someone is a Christian, then it must have power to give that affirmation, as best as we can tell, are a Christian. A person can be put out of the church if they were never brought in to the church. You can't have the back door of church discipline if you don't have the front door of church membership. So on what basis does uh, Jesus say we can, the church can confront sin 
among them. Well, first on the basis of his authority, but also on the basis of his support. This is verse 19. To be a little more precise, Jesus promises the Father's support. Now, it's important to keep verse 19 in context. He says, if two or three of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. If you just isolated that verse, you would do some damage with that one. So what's the context? Well, it's when two or three gather in unison to confront sin in the church. Jesus wants to assure us when we take this really hard, this really difficult, but sometimes necessary action, we have the Father's support. When we gather in unison to confront sin and the way Jesus has told us, we have the Father's support. On what basis does the church confront sin among them? On the basis of Jesus' authority, on the basis of the Father's support, and last at verse 20, on the basis of his presence. Verse 20 is another very popularly misused verse. You might have seen it stitched on a pillow or something. Uh, but again, remember the context of verse 20. Uh, we, it could lead us to think that Jesus is present only when there are multiple people, that he is with us always, not just when we are around fellow Christians. Again, verse 20, in context, is another encouragement in the hard work of confronting sin in the church. I mean, Jesus has a pastor's heart. Jesus must know that we probably won't be really thrilled to do this. Jesus knows that this is heartbreaking work. He knows that we would be even tempted to shy away from doing this when it's necessary. We think about even today, most churches, especially in the West, have just stopped doing this. So when the church humbly and mercifully confronts sin among them, Jesus assures us he is with us in a special way. Now, those are the instructions for confronting sin in the church. That's the basis on which we confront sin in the church. So what does this mean for us? Well, it's been the last time of our uh, part of our time answering what Matthew 18 means for what a church is and what a church does. We could say more than these, but I think there are at least five implications for a church from Matthew 18. First implication is how we define a church. How we define a church. So if we, take, if we took what we covered from Matthew 16 and Matthew 18, the first two, time, two times Jesus talks about the church, we took those and put those together, we could form a church in three steps. First step is that individuals believe the what of the gospel. That is the truth about Jesus, that he is the Christ, the Son of God, who lived, died, and rose again to rescue his people. The second step of forming a church is that these individual believers in Jesus affirm the who of the gospel. They recognize who believes the truth about Jesus. So like in verse 20, when they gather in Jesus' name, they recognize that each, they recognize each other, they each believe the truth about Jesus. They each believe the same Jesus. So friends, maybe a little bit behind the curtain, that's why we ask each uh, member who's coming into the church about their testimony, how they came to the Lord. That's why we ask each member uh, their understanding of the gospel and who Jesus is. We want to affirm the who of the gospel. So step one, forming a church, believe the what of the gospel. Step two, affirm the who of the gospel. And step three, as believers gather in Jesus' name, they agree to help and oversee each other's walk with Jesus. They agree to help and oversee each other's walk with Jesus. So it's like each individual Christian 
must give permission to the group to help him or her in their discipleship to Christ. That's because the church not only has authority to affirm believers in Jesus, they also have authority to remove that affirmation. So here again, just another summary. We would form a church. The local church believes and preaches the what of the gospel, the truth about Jesus. The local church affirms and oversees the who of the gospel. That is, who believes the truth about Jesus. And the local church does this by continuing to proclaim the what of the gospel, by continuing to bring in believers in Jesus, and when necessary, removing that affirmation of believers in Jesus. So one, one author writes this, doing all of this makes the local church able to guard the reputation of Christ by sorting out true believers from the false. The local church enables the world to look upon the canvas of God's people and see an authentic painting of Christ's love and holiness and not a forgery painting. Implication number two, what Matthew 18 means for a church. Second, is how you join a church. Uh, is, is anybody here a member of a wholesale shopping club? Okay, do we got, I, I, I'm, I'll give grace to the Sam's Club and BJ's folks, but I'm a Costco fan myself. I love Costco. Costco, yes, it's always packed, it's always busy. I, just, I don't know, maybe I've just crossed over the dark side of suburban but. There is just an air of excitement when you walk into Costco. What's going to be on sale in the front of the store today? A 15-pound bag of pretzel twists? Man, I would be losing money if I didn't buy that. <laughs> so any wholesale shopping club, to shop there, you have to be a member. And all you have to do, if you want to be a member, all you got to do is fill out a form and pay a fee. Joining a church isn't like becoming a member at Costco. So if God the Father has made you his child through the work of his son, you're not just a member of a club, you're a member of a family. You relate to the family through the local church. You don't join it, you belong to it. But more than that, Jesus gave the local church authority to oversee our walk with him. That means you don't join a church like a club. You submit to the church. Now, just to be clear, the local church should use her authority as Christ uses his authority, with service and with love. Nonetheless, if the local church is going to work the way Jesus designs it, then individual Christians must submit to it. Again, by becoming mem a member of a church, the individual Christian effectively says, I'm no longer an independent authority to myself. I invite the church in. My friend, if you claim to be a Christian but have not submitted to a local church by becoming a member, just ask, how are you supposed to follow Matthew 18? Do you accept Jesus' words that you need help and oversight from other Christians? I understand that there are stages of life and there, there are transition points and maybe they're different from the past, but it doesn't take away our need for this or Jesus' instructions about this. Please talk to us. You're not a member and want to become one here. Implication number three from Matthew 18 about how we do church is really first is how we treat the church. 
There are implications for how you treat the church. We said that the local church has an embassy-like authority. It has authority to recognize the citizens of heaven. It does this by affirming someone's profession of faith in Jesus. So here's the amazing thing. When you become part of a local church, you're not only affirmed by the embassy, you start to work for the embassy. I mean, that isn't all that it means to be part of a church, but if you are a member of a local church, then Jesus says that you partially have authority to affirm and oversee believers in him. So again, just a little bit behind the curtain, that's why we as an entire church vote on who we bring in as members and vote if we have to see anybody out as a member. It's authority that belongs to the entire local church, to each one of our members. So, brother and sister, my question for you, how are you stewarding and treating this authority that you have? Maybe it seems really intimidating. A place to start would at least be knowing people here. We can't do this well if we don't at least know well a few other people here and, and let other people know us also. That's the only way we can do Matthew 18 with any kind of success. Now, I know that takes time. That's a work in progress, but at least have direction for that. What we're saying. Fourth implication from Matthew 18 is for how we do church. How we do church. For a local church to function the way Jesus instructs, it must be a defined group of people. It must be a group that knows who is a part of them and who is not. This defined group of people must have a defined standards for what it means to be a Christian. This defined group of people must tend well to the front door and to the back door. They must be careful about who they affirm as Christians, and they must be willing to remove that affirmation. Now, friends, when I describe that, doesn't that sound so much different from how we're used to treating church? Church is not just an event that we're trying to get as many people we can to come to. If we treat church like that, then we're going to avoid Matthew 18, because we're going to think that accountability isn't attractive and that it keeps people away. But in fact, the church doesn't compel the world when she's just like it. The church compels the world when she's different from it. Why is light attractive to people who are in the dark? Because it's not the dark. <laughs> when the church contains peoples, people whose lives are transformed to look like Christ, that's when she is most attractive. And that's what we're trying to guard. Pastor Mark Dever writes this. Imagine this church. It is huge and is still numerically growing. People like it. The music is good. Whole extended families can be found within its membership. The people are welcoming. There are many exciting programs and people are quickly enlisted into their support. And yet the church, in trying to look like the world in order to win the world, has done a better job than it may have intended. It does not display the distinctly holy characteristics taught in the New Testament. Such an apparently vigorous church is truly spiritually sick, with no remaining immune system to check and guard against wrong teaching or wrong living. Imagine Christians knee-deep in recovery groups and sermons on brokenness and grace being comforted in their sin but never confronted. Imagine those people made in the image of God being lost to sin because no one corrects them. Can you imagine such a church? Have I not described most of our America? 
area of churches. The fifth and final implication from Matthew 18 is why we need church. Why we need church. To clarify again, Matthew 18 should not lead us to be mean or vindictive. That is not the final picture we want to be left with. The church is not a group of people who constantly scrutinize each other and examine each other, just waiting on the, their edge of their seats for somebody to mess up. That is not who the church is. Friends, we need the church because we need Jesus. The church is the way that Jesus ensures that his people stay close to him. We need other Christians who have committed themselves to help us and to follow Christ with us. And they need us to do the same for them. This commitment isn't so that we can earn Christ's favor. This commitment is because we already have Christ's favor. Our commitment to assemble together, our commitment to help each other, our commitment even to hold each other accountable when we need to. All of this comes from our grateful worship of the one who loves us gave up his life for us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we want to build our lives and our eternity upon you, upon the, the solid rock of who, the truth about who you are, um, and not the sinking sand of anything else. Lord, give us um, faith in your goodness so that we would follow your instructions. Lord, as a church, keep us holy, merciful, love. Lord, would this be a place anyone who has fallen into sin would be brought back and be close to you once more? Lord, would this be a group of people who shines brightly in the dark. You would shine through us by making us holy and loving, even when it's hard work. 